the Fair Housing Act, when it got when housing discrimination was made illegal 50 some years ago, that didn't fix the problem. It was like a bathtub. You leave for work with the bathtub water on the bathtubs overflowing all day long while you're at work and you come home to have your second floor bathroom dripping all the way down through your first floor in your basement. And the Fair Housing Act was like, okay, we're going to turn off the faucet. Did that solve the problem? Not even close. Hi, Steve. My name is Matt DeFanis. I am broker owner of REMAX Realty Associates with offices throughout the Champaign-Urbana metro area. And I also had the honor of serving as the chair of the National Association of Realtors Professional Standards Interpretations and Procedures Advisory Board. Matt, I am and my wife, we are kind of real estate geeks. We know nothing about it. We don't pretend to. We don't try to sell houses on the side, but we just like to window shop. We like to drive through neighborhoods and see what's for sale and occasionally go to an open house. Here we are in June. Tell me about the current state of real estate in Champaign-Urbana. Well, interestingly, it's not always the case, but Champaign-Urbana is a microcosm of virtually every other market in the country. Sometimes there's wild divergence from here versus Chicago versus California, and the headline everywhere is a historic lack of inventory, which is resulting in this superheated market condition. And so um, people that are working, realtors, colleagues who are working with buyers in particular, are getting worn out because you have to write a lot of offers and some pretty crazy offers to get houses. And a lot of times that means losing a few houses first. So my most extreme example is I have clients now under contract to buy a house, but they lost out on a 30-30 way bidding war on a $200,000 house in Urbana uh, earlier this season, a thirty way. I've I've seen the occasional article in some of the national newspapers about bidding wars. Thirty has got to be one of the highest bidding wars in the history of real estate here in Champaign Urbana. Yeah, it's very it's really peculiar, and it's the sort of thing that sounds like it would be associated with. Oh, well, Google opened up a facility with 10,000 new six-figure jobs, and we can't build houses fast enough. And we're really lucky here. We have a good local economy. Really, really lucky. But we don't have that going on. I mean, it's not like there's a reason that we suddenly don't have enough homes other than a short term, as far as I can tell, short term mismatch between seasonal supply and seasonal demand. Okay. We got the usual number of buyers at the usual time of year, and we got sellers coming on a little late. Can you kind of predict when you think this might start to even out where you might only have five people bidding on a house? <laughs> yeah. In this, so in the short term, what's going to happen is you can't have people losing out in a 30-way bidding war, especially if they're low down payment and they can't cover an appraisal shortfall. So you're going to quickly at this time of year have, have a point where buyers take themselves out of the market. They go find some place to lease. They'll sidestep the instant situation. And then every year, our listings hit later than the buyers, but I think it's exaggerated this year because we still have an awful lot of households that have dual income uh, adults working from home and kids e-learning from home until basically like this week. And so we always have people that can't get houses on until after the school year ends. I think we have more of them this year. So I'm expecting that it, the pendulum won't swing from this crazy seller's market to a buyer's market, but I do think it will cool off pretty quickly. Uh, it'll cool off noticeably, I would expect, within weeks and cool off more within months. But the other factor is new construction costs uh, because of supply chain issues have spiked. So that also limits one other area where you could normally grow the supply of housing. Well, you can still theoretically do it, but the cost to build new has gone way up. How does a 30-way bidding process work? Do you just say, all right, Put your bid in an envelope and we'll call you the next day if you were the highest. So sometimes it is the highest price that wins, but a lot of times it's not. So people that are getting financing, oftentimes a key variable is, 
when you're if you go way above list price, you have to anticipate that it will not appraise at that contract price. And so now probably the most interesting common twist is if I have a buyer client who has enough cash on hand to make their down payment, get their loan based on the appraised value. So the appraisal comes in low. We figure that will because the data is a lagging indicator, but they're saying in writing, we're prepared to bring an extra 10 or $20,000 to closing. So what's often winning is either cash offer, no contingencies. So there's no chance of it appraising low or we're financing, but we're promising in writing. We're still in the deal. Even if our lender required appraisal comes in 10 or even $20,000 below list. So price sometimes wins it, but a lot of times it's this risk-adjusted basis where it may not be the highest price. Instead, it's going to be something like, are they able to promise in advance to get past a low appraisal? So, I mean, if you're a first-time home buyer, typical newlyweds, maybe you've rented for a couple of years, it's not the best time or the easiest time to buy a house, is it? I mean, it depends on how comfortable you are being run through a meat grinder. <laughs> so, so what I'll say is one of the things that I love about the Champagne Urbana community is we have very, very uh, smart and deliberative thinkers in in larger numbers than you would find in the general population. Think engineering faculty members or accountancy faculty members. And think about the current market conditions as personality kryptonite for those folks. These are people who thrive on collecting data, analyzing it, deliberating, and then making methodical, deliberate decisions. And right now, I'm very low pressure by nature. And right now, I have to say, no pressure, but you're going to have to decide in the next few minutes if you want it, because then in the following few minutes, we have to decide how many thousands or tens of thousands of dollars over list price you're going to bid. I mean, and then imagine somebody, I mean, like I said, it's personality kryptonite for that type of thinker. I can Im- I can imagine that now. I'd never even thought of that. But yeah, if you're somebody who is not only getting information from their realtor, you're also looking at uh, you know Zillow and you're looking at county records or whatever, and you think you've got it all figured out, and you see this house, and they call you, and you're like, well, you better make a decision before even looking at it. I mean, we'll still look at it, but that's got to be tough for the critical thinkers. Mm-hmm. And I've I've had some that have sold sight unseen. Yeah. I've heard that. I've heard that there are a lot more sight unsold, sight unseen sell sales. Well, that's a, that's a, she sells seashells. <laughs> it's very alliterative. <laughs> but I've heard, I, I can't remember. I saw, a, again, another article. These real estate articles are just fascinating to me about how there have been more of these sight unseen sales than in the longest time. So it's pretty fascinating. So let's, let's talk about um, something that you're pretty passionate about. And you touched on it in the introduction here when you introduced yourself. But fair housing is uh, is a uh, a cause of importance for you. Well, so you know, as by way of background, I have lived my entire life in the Champaign Urbana metro area. So, um, and I'm in my mid 40s. So I was born years after fair housing was already the law of the land. The Fair Housing Act was passed in 1968, just days after Dr. Martin Luther King was assassinated. And so, growing up, I didn't grow up and I went to public schools. um, And it wasn't as though my peers, my black peers were living in an era of legalized formal discrimination. But what I've learned as a real estate professional is it was their parents and grandparents who didn't have any intergenerational wealth to pass down because my industry systematically and pretty nefariously deprived the black population of access to the single most powerful source of wealth building in the United States, which, which is homeownership. And so 
there's this hangover effect, even though I was unaware of my white privilege, it's become very, very clear to me in more recent years, there is a very lasting, very strong hangover effect that you can directly trace back to the era of legalized housing discrimination. And indeed, even today, um, I can confirm mostly because of some transformative relationships with a lot of black colleagues, the discrimination is still very, very common. And I would have thought if it wasn't going to happen somewhere, it'd be here. Big Ten research, university driven, progressive leaning. Well, we wouldn't do that here until I you know, was confronted by the fact that one of my high school classmates that I met in Chicago on the sidelines of a fair housing event um, said, oh, yeah, Champaign is where I experienced my first episode of housing discrimination. She said uh, she's a HUD attorney. So black female literally in the fair housing business as a young woman in Champaign. I would check for available rentals. I don't sound black on the phone. And repeatedly, when a black woman showed up to see it, time after time after time, those properties were not available for rent. And that I'd already been on this journey of discovery of the history of it, but that burst the little smug bubble of, well, at least that wouldn't happen here. And then I realized, no, it happens here. And if it's happening here, it's happening everywhere. Is that the most typical case where somebody calls to rent or they're interested in purchasing or leasing or whatever? The owner of the property discovers that they are not a white person. And so bias and or racism just automatically kicks in for them or not necessarily automatically, perhaps deliberately as well. Yeah, by the numbers, it's it's persons with disabilities that are the largest number of actual formal complaints, I believe, that HUD processes. But when it comes to issues of of race discrimination or religious discrimination, you have a lot of different ways that manifests itself. Um, and it's not as, as much a homeowner doing it. But for example, one of the things that's making headlines on a regular basis is same house gets appraised with evidence that a black family lives there. Family pictures, other evidence that it is black residents. Same house gets de-blacked reappraised appraised value goes up stratospherically with absolutely no physical condition changed. And in my presentations in d different parts of the country on fair housing, I refer to a report from 96, 97 years ago. That was an after action report on the Chicago race riots of red summer of 1919. So we're going back dang near a hundred years. And there's an entire segment on quote Negroes and property values and that the mere proximity, much less presence on the block of black people tanks your property values. And here we are a hundred years later, and that is still a frequent headline uh, today. New York Times and Washington Post have both in the last few months uh, had detailed stories about exactly that. No reason other than the house had evidence of being occupied by black people. It appraised drastically lower. We are a hundred years later. So let's go back a little bit to a term that you use, redlining. I've heard this before. I, I must confess, I, uh, I don't know what that means. I didn't do any research on it because I knew I would be talking to you. Yeah. So, um, so let me just say, I've been in the business for 23 years and fair housing is something that as un until the last few years, it was really just a vocabulary drill on things I had to know the definitions of to get my license and then to pass my continuing education classes and keep it. It was ancient history. It wasn't anything that really meant anything to me. But what redlining actually refers to is in the, um, in the new deal era that followed the great depression, a federal government agency, the Homeowners Loan Corporation, was created as part of a New Deal initiative, and it was part of a plan to make um, 
mainstream 30-year fixed rate financing available to the masses. But in so doing, realtors and appraisers were risk profiling neighborhoods. And a key factor for how they would rate neighborhoods for risk was the color of the people who lived there. And sometimes not color. Sometimes it would be whatever the lowest rung of Italian of, uh, of European immigrants was. So you would see references to Italian people or Irish people, but most notably it was the black population. And Again, realtors and appraisers are who wrote those maps, and the lowest rated regions were shaded in red, and it was impossible to get mainstream financing in those neighborhoods. So you had neighborhoods that had a high percentage of black residents that were redlined. It shut off the money supply to those neighborhoods at the exact same time that the money supply was opened up to build white suburbs. And the white suburbs were built with racially restrictive covenants. So we're going to trap the black people here and cut off the money supply. We're going to build these white suburbs and they will literally be white only because for them to be insurable, they must have racially restrictive covenants that say only white people shall be allowed to buy homes here. Uh, And so it was just this, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. It was just this compound layer of ways in which my industry and our government stacked up Stack the entire deck against the black population, making it virtually impossible to achieve the American dream of homeownership. Because imagine, I'll use Chicago as an example. Chicago's black population peaked at over 1 million people in the 60s. So just the black population already would have been one of America's largest cities. It didn't matter if you were a successful black community business owner and had tons of money. You still were not able to buy a house for cash in many of the areas you would have wanted to. You were still trapped. Okay, so you uh, you mentioned you're in your 40s. How did a guy in his 40s become interested in fair housing and the problems with racial profiling and race with regard to real estate? How, how did that come about? So I am the first and only person from this area to have ever served as the president of the statewide Illinois Realtors Trade Organization. That's, that's the 50,000 member trade group. And uh, I was on their leadership team, a volunteer leadership team for four years. 2018 happened to be the year I was president. 2018 was the 50-year anniversary of the Federal Fair Housing Act. And so Illinois, in addition to the National Association of Realtors and some other states, were planning commemorative activities uh, for it. And it was that year before, in 2017, I started out on that leadership team, started out on that board of directors, 28-member board. In 2017, the 28-member board of directors for the Illinois Realtors is 100% white. And at first, I didn't realize that that was a problem because, you know, I'm a white guy. It kind of looks like a family reunion. You don't intrinsically recognize who's missing. And over time, I started to become more sensitized to, wait a minute, we've got we've got important voices and perspectives and backgrounds missing, especially in a state as diverse as Illinois that's home to Chicago. And then I started learning the history as we started dealing with some of these commemorative planning items and creating a documentary video, the Illinois Realtors did. And the, the history was just heartbreaking. And parallel to that, I became, I went from unaware to aware, to concerned, to obsessed with improving inclusion. And part of my obsession with improving inclusion was I didn't have a roadmap, but I was determined I was going to go anywhere that it took to make sure that there was meaningful outreach. And so I became in a short period of time, I became very accustomed as a guy who grew up here, who went to Chicago many, many times as a kid, unless you're going to a Sox game, you do not get off the Dan Ryan was basically the, the, the strong message. I've gotten very used to being the only white person in a lot of rooms on the South side of Chicago doing outreach uh, in the Chicago's in Chicago's black real estate community. And in fact, being an, a very involved member of a historic black trade group, the Dearborn Realtors Board in Chicago, whose origins trace back to the fact that even in Chicago, not the Jim Crow South, Chicago, 
black members weren't admitted as realtors until 1963. We had a million black people in the city of Chicago. They were shut out of mainstream organized real estate left with no choice but to organize themselves and have an entirely separate trade organization, code of ethics, the whole nine yards. So that was part of my journey. And so as as starting with that, I have been blessed with some utterly transformative friendships uh, and I will not ever know what it is like to sell real estate while black, but those transformative friendships have afforded me a front row seat and friends who have pulled back the curtain. And so I have been able to get a good, hard look and I cannot unsee it. And the amount of, ongoing discrimination issues that still persist way into the 21st century are just appalling. What's next then? What is what is the real estate community, realtors on the national level, local level? What's Is there a, f- a five-year plan, a 10-year plan? For me, as a real estate professional, for me as a broker owner, um, it's important to recruit black talent because if I put myself in the shoes of a black consumer who I hope will become a homeowner someday, but who doesn't come from a family lineage of homeownership, who doesn't know anybody who's in real estate, who doesn't see anyone in their church community that sells real estate. And the idea is if they want to even explore it, they're driving across town to sit across a desk from a white guy they assume is going to tell them no and or berate them. That is no small thing. And so one of the things I have told the black talent that I have eagerly recruited into the business is this is no overstatement to say that you will personify access to home ownership. You will personify success as a as an entrepreneur in the business of real estate brokerage. And you will find that somebody's family and generations to come, that their financial trajectory will be permanently altered because you were doing this in your community at this moment in time. Yeah, that makes sense. Because even if you do everything within your power, you, Matt, you know, middle-aged white guy, young middle-aged white guy. (laughs) (laughs) But even if you do everything, I mean, really, you're right. I mean, it's like in business, if you want more women in technology, if you want more women in leadership roles, it certainly helps to put a female in the CEO position. And it certainly helps if you want uh, stronger roles in Hollywood films and TV shows to put a female scriptwriter in the writing room and have a female director. And so to have an African-American or Latino uh, realtor, more of them in our community is only going to strengthen this community for everybody, right? Yeah, politically, what you'll hear is you'll hear the people uh, uh, deriding identity politics. Well, it's all about getting the best talent. Don't don't put people there as tokens or as affirmative action placement. But the reality is, number one, there's no lack of talent in any of those demographic groups. And number two, I used to I used to underestimate the power of that until I have realized again by having a lot of my very very best friends on earth be black success stories in in the real estate industry, and I st- I started to realize up close that that really means something. Until you see somebody you can identify with at a glance and realize that person is personifying a pathway I otherwise would not have known was open to people like me, that means something. And so the best thing I can possibly hope for, the best outcome I can hope for is to do as much as I can for as long as I can 
and to spread the word so that we get as many people, particularly that look like me, that are ready and willing to be part of the solution. Um, because one, one analogy that, that I heard that was very clever is the Fair Housing Act, when it got when housing discrimination was made illegal 50 some years ago, that didn't fix the problem. It was like a bathtub. You leave for work with the bathtub water on, the bathtub's overflowing all day long while you're at work, and you come home to have your second floor bathroom dripping all the way down through your first floor in your basement. And the Fair Housing Act was like, okay, we're going to turn off the faucet. Did that solve the problem? Not even close. In fact, the real problem is going to be the mold growing in between uh, in on the insides of your walls for years if it's not if you don't start tearing it down to the studs and doing some really, really serious work. And I just was confronted by that analogy recently, and it's a very, very good way to illustrate why it is that 50 some years later, there's still work to be done. People have to actually show up, speak out, do work. Matt, we're going to leave it there. That was great. And thank you. Very, very informative. And uh, keep up the fight. Thanks. I appreciate you joining me. Thank you so very much. I appreciate the opportunity. Hey, that's the show. If you have a comment or question, my email is in the show notes of your podcast app, or you can visit the contact link at Holstein.co. If you are listening in an app and you haven't already, please press the subscribe or follow button so each episode gets on your gadget automatically. And if you listen in Apple Podcasts and you like what I do, be sure to leave a five-star review, and if you can, a nice comment. Hey, that's it. I'm Steve, and this was Holstein & Company, the podcast. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.